Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and thank everybody that's been sending messages and supporting the show. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also want to shout out Osiris Media, who helps me put this show together. They also have a lot of other great content and a lot of other great shows. In particular, uh, there's a new show called Past, Present, Future Live, where I actually was featured on the first episode, which came out last week. So make sure you check that out at OsirisPod.com or again, wherever you get your podcasts. So we've got a really special show today. One of my favorite guitarists of all time, I can confidently say that. And a very close friend. We've been working together for over 20 years. Back in 99, Soul Live toured with Derek Truck's band across the country. And ever since, we've been good friends. And uh, shortly after that, he became the guitarist for the Allman Brothers Band. And those of you that know him know that his uncle, Butch Trucks, was the drummer in the band. And once he got the gig, he started coming to New York City, which was where I lived at the time. And, you know, both of us being in our early 20s, we would run around the city and check out music all the time and go to record stores. And uh, I was always learning from him. Like, we were peers, but he always seemed so much older than his actual age. He was like an elder statesman in a young man's body. And I think that had something to do with hitting the road at a very, very young age. I think he was touring by age 11 and, you know, had guys in his band like Yanrico Scott, who was about 30, at least 30 years um, older than him. He also spent a lot of time with Colonel Bruce Hampton, who we talk about a bit in the interview, who was definitely a guiding light for a lot of us. And Kofi Burbridge, who was his bandmate for many, many years, was also a huge inspiration to Derek and to all of us in the scene. He was a musical genius. He was a Zen master and just one of our favorite people on earth. All three of the people that I just mentioned have passed away in the recent years. So it's been a really hard time for the Tedeschi Trucks band and for all of us that spent time with Rico, Bruce, and Kofi. All three of them were incredible musicians. But beyond that, they all wanted to help the next generation. Um, Rico was always telling us stories and inspiring us to be better. And Bruce, everyone that knows Bruce, knows that he had the ability to find the young musician that was going to understand the way and help show them the way. And Kofi, I mean, spending that summer playing bass with Tedeschi Trucks Band, I learned more just standing next to Kofi than any other time period in my life. I called it Kofi University because every night I would take away little nuggets from just watching him play so effortlessly. And he was always inspired. He never ran out of incredible ideas and always got excited sharing that. I remember seeing him with his nephews and bringing them to the gigs and he would get so excited when they'd be learning music and learning these new programs and learning about the B3 organ. So I'd like to dedicate this episode to Bruce, Kofi, and Rico for being the great teachers of people like Derek and myself and so many others. So let's get into the interview here. He's an incredible band leader, a producer, a writer, 
known as one of the greatest guitar players alive and to me the greatest slide guitar player possibly that's ever lived. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. Derek Trucks. Have you been playing guitar at all, or is it like the last thing you're thinking about right now? No, I've been playing a little bit. It's okay. kind of, uh, you know, we, we kind of, you listen to a lot of music, you watch, you like binge watch a lot of stuff. And I've noticed lately, like I'll hear, I'll hear stuff in a soundtrack or, and then I'll immediately get an idea. <laughs> like, sorry, I got to pause this. Well, that's the great thing about having time like this, because when you force time in the studio and force time to work on things, it's hard to. It's drift. not the same. It's not the totally. same. So just kind yeah. of let things happen and uh, is a whole different story. You actually can get creative and ideas will yeah. start flowing. No, I've I've noticed. Yeah, I've noticed that. And and uh, like with Sophia, she's fifteen. You know, it's a crazy time to be alive. Anytime you're 15, <laughs> this oh, yeah. is nuts. But it's like, she's like, hey, dad, do you have time to talk? I'm like, yeah, I have all the time in the world to talk. Right. Let's, go, let's go talk. So it's it's been good for connecting on all kinds of levels. And I've, I've noticed you like reach out to friends that you haven't talked to in a long time. And it's, totally. it's like a collective deep breath for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's, is- been, it's been interesting talking to a lot of musicians like during this time. Because everybody is kind of blown away by everything and also scared as shit, but also happy to slow down because we never do. You know, we never. Yeah. Yeah. No, you just go. And and I mean, I think most people are that way. You just go and you work and you. This is true. You, you, you never get a chance to really uh, take stock or kind of remember why, why you're doing it in the first place. <laughs> so it's, right. uh, but I mean, it's a trip. Like we've, my parents are just a few doors down and they'll, they'll swing by in their golf cart every day, but stay about 10, 15 foot away. But it, it is weird. Um, you don't realize like no physical contact is a, it's a weird thing. You know, you see your friends, you hug them, you shake their hands. It's a weird thing to, to just, especially with your parents and people that you, you want to be extra cautious with. It's, uh, I can tell my mom it's wearing on her. She wants to hug her grandkids. Oh, I know. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's wearing them out. But, you know, I think everybody's appreciating the uh, that everyone's taking it seriously. And and it's like, well, we're looking out for your health. <laughs> and what are the kids – What I'm curious what the kids, like, are thinking about all this. What's their take on this? Well, it's – like, you know, like my nephews, um, they're, they're younger. They, they're – kind of incredibly resilient at that age, you know, four yeah. and six, four and seven. Um, but you know, they, they, they're like, why can't we go hang out with our friends? Right. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, it wears on everyone. Charlie's at a weird age, you know, he's, he's supposed to graduate high school and, um, you know, you miss your senior prom. There's, I don't think they're going to be walking. There'll be no graduation. Oh, he, he's been playing baseball since he was five and, uh, he played his last game without knowing it. <laughs> you right. know, it's just like the season's over. Your whole you've been working up to you know when you're a senior on your on your varsity team, it's kind of a it's kind of a victory lap the whole season. So it's you know, I I feel I feel for his his class or or college students that are graduating, it seems like that's a lot of work to put in to just have it uh the rug pulled out. But you know, these are they these are, I guess, compared to what a lot of people are dealing with, uh, small problems, but 
you know, I, I, I feel for him. He's, he's certainly in a tougher spot than I am currently. Right. right. Yeah. It's been weird, um, living in Los Angeles because we're all like spread out, but everybody is also, they're either in the entertainment or the service industry, pretty much everybody yeah, I know. So totally. everybody's out of work. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, even though I've probably canceled 50 gigs, I, I don't feel like I can complain because I get to be here in my house and be able to, I can create music. I can kind of still like do the, actually in cer certain cases, do a lot of the things I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, yeah. obviously it's kind of a financially scary time. Just in, I mean, I just also feel like we don't know what's going to happen after all this, or if there is an after, you know, I know, man, it's, it's, uh, you know, we've, it, it's kind of one of those things where, I mean, our, our timing has been incredibly lucky. You know, we we decided to take the longest break that we've ever taken. And that goes back to, to the early mid-90s for me. I mean, I've never had three months without a gig. And um, it happened to start right after that show we did together, The Beacon, on March 12th. So we we haven't had to cancel gigs yet, but I know it's coming. I mean, I can't imagine in June we're going to be jumping back in and playing amphitheaters <laughs> that's just i mean may, maybe it'll surprise me but um so that, yeah i mean there's a lot of that uncertainty for everybody you're trying to figure out um i mean we have 20 24 people we keep on payroll year round and you start thinking well how long uh far in the future do we factor in yeah that's scary <laughs> stuff man yeah and, and and i know it is for everybody but uh so far i've just been been glad everyone in our our tight circle of health is there and the people that we know that have that have gotten it have uh so far been okay so um you know you take you take those that first things first <laughs> so, but yeah I, I think uh i think the next four or six months for all of us are, is going to be uh i mean nobody knows no no one no one plans for things to just stop <laughs> you, you plan we plan for um you know wor you, your worst case scenario isn't uh isn't this <laughs> it's kind of a trip so yeah it is and for you i mean you probably haven't taken this much time off from touring since what nine years old yeah i think that's the last time i ever went this long without a gig so um on some level i'm loving it right. <laughs> i'm loving the the air and and you know, you go and listen and play music when the spirit moves you and there's no, there's no timetable on it. Um, you know, we had planned it all. We had planned all kinds of things on this break to do, um, which maybe is a blessing that we're not because there's something about just sitting and having to be with yourself. <laughs> That's good. I think it's really good for us all. Yeah. You know, a little, a little self-reflection is, uh, we, not, we don't get to do that a lot. Right, <laughs> no right. one does. So, um, yeah, it's, it, but an interesting time, man. I, I I don't think anyone knows what to make of it yet, but I I do think there's a lot of silver linings, and I think we have to we have to take those where we get them. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, beyond just I think us as people slowing down, it's also affecting the environment in a lot of positive ways. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean. Sometimes the pause button is uh, <laughs> what you need, you know. Right, and maybe this will... It feels, feels like a deep breath all the way around. For just, sure. Uh, Even though we can't yeah. really take them around other people. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. And, and that's the irony of it all. <laughs> wow. But so, tour, I mean, having spent, let's see, what is it, 30 something? Wait, yeah, 30, about 30 years on the road. Um, <laughs> that's wow, that's insane. a crazy number to throw out. I was thinking about it today. I think I met you 20 years ago or 21 years ago. Yeah, what a trip, man. Yeah. And, and and we've been road dogging it nonstop ever since. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> no doubt it's, about that. It's crazy. And what were like your first tours like? I mean, I remember I've seen videos and I always love watching the videos with you with like the huge guitar and the big ass shirts on and then a bunch of like <laughs> mullets around you. <laughs> yeah, and, and I probably had a mullet under my baseball hat. Yeah, you might have had one. I mean, I mean, it was what the eighties. Uh, you know, every, it was early nineties. It was early nineties. You know, the mullet was was cool. Um, but, everyone's been watching uh, Tiger King, and I oh, keep yeah. thinking every everyone in that documentary played in one of my bands. <laughs> early nineties, like all the promo fo- photos from that era, they just they totally look like those people. <laughs> it's pretty wonderful. I mean, the crazy thing is, I you you sound like you then. You know, what I mean, obviously you've evolved, you know, on a lot of levels. But do you remember? Or do you have memories of first picking up a guitar? Do you remember that era at all? Or yeah, you know, I do. No, I, I do. I like. I, I remember. I remember the first time. The first times you sit in. First time you play in public. Um, I mean, I there was a guitar teacher. I, I started playing. My dad showed me a few things, and then he got um, one of his friends over. His name was Jim Graves, and he used to be in a band with my uncle, uh, a, a band that was just called Trucks. And yeah. uh, J- Jim Graves was a great player, um, but he he would he played this like solo gig at a, a club in Jacksonville called Applejacks. Yeah. So I would go sit in with him there, and then that led to like sitting in with a local blues band. And uh, I met Coco Taylor there when I was nine. I mean. John Lee Hooker was playing that little club. So there was still a pretty cool scene then. And uh, those are all things that, that really stick in your head. But yeah. I, I remember that feeling like the first time, because I was playing slide standard tuning in the beginning. And then I heard somebody at one of those shows that, that had that, that sound, that thing that Dwayne had that no one had. And I, I remember picking his brain and he was like, oh, it's, you should try playing and, an open tuning like it it all makes more sense and that was that was such an epiphany and then the first time i played a few nights later i was i tried to play in the open e tuning and it was just one of the few times i remember just totally losing the battle <laughs> on right. stage like it just it didn't it didn't go well but um sometimes you need those you need those moments fully i mean i think those are as important as the as the high points Oh man, makes you appreciate you know, them. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the scene in in Bird, the Charlie Parker movie, where uh, I, I, was it Philly Joe that threw a symbol at him? Oh yeah, and then they <laughs> that recur that like is a recurring theme throughout. I think <laughs> that's true. So yeah, we we all have to have that moment. Uh, but you know, it's uh, some of your personality musically is just kind of baked in the cake. <laughs> like right. you you kind of have it right out of the gate. And was that something that you're – so when you first picked up a guitar was – and by the way, I just got to say that Chris Trucks, your dad, Papa Trucks, is one of my favorite people on the planet Earth. <laughs> um, Mine too. <laughs> was, was, was he, did he put it in your hands or was it laying around and you gravitated toward it? You know, how, how did that happen? 
You know, we my mom was always big on uh, making me and my brother do lots of chores, and then if you if you knocked him out, you get probably about five bucks a week, <laughs> something right. like that. Get your allowance. And I remember we would hit uh, garage sales, and the one we hit that uh, this particular day, it was just nothing interesting for a for a kid at all, except for a just a, a beat up acoustic guitar. And uh, I think they gave it to me for for five bucks. <laughs> so, nice. so that that's there was really no. I didn't really have a desire to play until then. And then, uh, you know, I bugged my dad for a little while. He, you know, he was a roofer. He would come home from work pretty exhausted. So it, it took it took a week or so before he had a night where we sat down and played because he played a little bit. Yeah. Um, and just one thing led to another. I remember that maybe a few months later it was it was Christmas and he I got a, a little better acoustic guitar from a pawn shop from him. And uh, then we would sit around on Saturday nights and he would play rhythm and he would, he would let me kind of explore and learn how to play melodies. And, uh, and, but he would always, at, at first, as soon as I would start playing, he would listen and kind of lose, he would lose time. <laughs> and so he, he realized that if he, if he drank a little bit, he could just chug on through. <laughs> so that was our ritual, man. Every Saturday, um, we'd watch Saturday Night live and in the commercial breaks, he would, uh, he would play rhythm guitar and we would just, we would do that thing for a while. So that those, those are fond memories. There was there a moment where, where Papa trucks was like, wait a second, you need to do something with this. Like you, you, you have a special gift here. He, he, he was kind of pretty quickly on that trip. I mean, he, he, uh, he had been around a lot of music and he feels things, you know, he's a pretty intuitive character. Um, and you know, it wasn't, it was only a few months after I started playing with him that I started sitting in and took a handful of lessons with his buddy, Jim Graves. And one thing led to another. So it, it all happened pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, he, he was always, he was always the guy in your corner. And he, you know, when, when, uh, when a night would be good, when, when you would play something that really moved him, that's kind of what you were always after. Kind of still to this day, he sits side stage at our gigs and, you know when it's a good night because you come off the side and he's got this big shit-eating grin on his face. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've actually experienced that up. a couple times myself. A couple times yeah, playing with you, but then at other times, like if he tells me that my set was good, I'm like, oh, shit. Because he, it. <laughs> it's the best, man, because he, he, will, he won't say anything negative if it's not good, but he won't yeah. say anything well, he just Positive generally won't be good. there. He won't be there when you get off stage. You <laughs> totally. know what I mean? That, that's what right. I've experienced. Yeah, he he is. Uh, he can't help but but tell the truth or what what his version is. And he, uh, yeah, when when he when something moves him, it I, I always I always know it was a good night if he's over there grinning. Right. <laughs> so. And how connected was he with the Almond Brothers? When you know, obviously, his brother, me and Butch. For those of you out there that don't know that, hey, was he around in the early days? Did he travel with them at all? Well, I mean, he was around, you know, when they first started um, playing and jamming around Jacksonville before the band was officially formed. Yeah. He, you know, he was, he was 15 or 16. He would sneak out of the house and go see him. And he was, uh, you know, he was the tolerated younger brother. And, uh, and then when they were up doing the Fillmore, stuff he he went AWOL from military college 
the same one Colonel Bruce was going to at yeah, the time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. And um, he hitched a ride up there with his brother, with Butch. And uh, so he was around for a lot of the, a lot of the, the major stuff. You know, he was at the Atlanta pop festival shows and he, he saw a lot of incredible stuff. I actually found his uh, backstage pass for the, the Fillmore shows not too long ago when they were moving. Oh, wow. And it was, uh, hand signed by Kip Cohen, which was uh, one of Bill Graham's right-hand men, the stage manager at the Fillmore East. And um, I, I think it's from one of the March shows in 71. I think that's what it was. But uh, pretty incredible. He has some he has some amazing stories. I mean, he saw Hendrix open for the Monkees here in Jacksonville. Whoa. <laughs> Said the first time he tripped on acid was seeing Hendrix. I was like, that's a good place to start. That is a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, Chris Truggs has stories. We need to oh, do a, yeah. We need to do a podcast. Or a you know what? I would love to get Chris Truggs on here. That would be amazing. He, he will go. You might have to edit some of it out. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm keeping the unedited version for myself to, to refer <laughs> back right. to. You can send me that one, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How prevalent was the Almond Brothers like as part of your childhood? Were you going to shows a lot and were you around that a lot? You know, I remember seeing one show when I was uh before I ever started playing. I must have been 5 or 6. I was really young and and I remember bits and pieces of it. But then they were on, they kind of went on hiatus for about 8 years, 9 years in the 80s. They, the band broke up. Yeah. And that's that's kind of my childhood. So I wasn't around it then. I mean, I would see Butch at at Christmas or whenever we would come through town and then they reformed in 89. And that was about, that was, I think I had just started playing then. So, um, yeah, about the time I started playing is when they got back together. First time I saw Warren and Alan Woody with the, with the group. And I, I you know, that music was kind of, it was a little bit mythology to me because it was stories. I would always hear my dad talk about, but the band didn't exist. And, no one really cared about it in the late 80s. Certainly nobody in my friend group <laughs> knew or cared of who the Almond Brothers were. So when they reformed, it was a bit of a revelation for me, you know, getting to see them and, um, you know, hear that sound that I thought was long in the past. And, and it's strange now because, like you said, we've, we've known each other 20-something years and I've been on the road 30 years. When I was a kid in the 80s, the, you know, the Fillmore was only – 20 years before that <laughs> it's funny you know it was like it, it seemed like things that happened so long ago but um you know once once you're in it long enough it's all a little bit of living history i was you know what's crazy i was talking to schofield the other day who came on the show and he was my the age that i am now right he was that age when he first played with soul live and i was marcus's age and I just, <laughs> my, my brain is like, poof, poof. You're um, like wait no, I'm, I'm still that young no, like, I'm still, no, no it's it's weird because like you don't think of yourself as old until you're around little whippersnappers you know my son's about the age that i was when i joined the almond brothers that is crazy it's a strange thought <laughs> and i i remember that pretty well um yeah because we were hanging we, we knew each other then yeah, because you were coming to New York, and we were both kids. And I remember we yeah. were running around going to clubs and knitting and factory and knitting factory. I remember yeah. going to I think it was Tower Records, and you had just gotten the 
uh, the per diem, which was like more cash than you'd ever had in your pocket. <laughs> we just bought records. <laughs> and we just bought a ton of ZDs. And I was like, check out this Yusef Latif. And you were telling me all about Indian music, which was kind of blowing my mind at the time because I'd heard some of the basics. Uh, but you really totally – I remember going home and listening to nothing but those CDs for like a couple weeks. Um, yeah, that was the uh, the Jeff site. Colonel Bruce Hampton uh, tutelage. <laughs> right. And you went down the rabbit hole. I remember hearing you play uh, like a year later and you were incorporating this microtonal stuff and vocalization on your guitar. That And that was when I think, and I don't want to put this, because I always ask somebody in the, some point in the podcast, like a turn to kind of specify a turning point. And I yeah. fully heard that in you at that point. And I was curious if you could talk about that a little bit, that experience of, of, of kind of immersing yourself in that music for, for a little while and how that, how you absorbed it, you know? Well, I, I mean, that, that time for me was certainly when, when everything seemed to fully click or I don't know, uh, like you said, a turning point. And it was, uh, yeah, it was going down. It was kind of stop listening to guitar players or anything that, was familiar and it was almost all Indian classical or gospel singers or, um, and a lot of Ali Akbar Khan and Nusrat at the time. Um, and then Alan Woody turned me on to the sacred steel stuff. He gave me this disc of Aubrey Gent. Oh, this yeah. was all around the, around the same time period. And, uh, I think the first tune on the disc was amazing grace. And the first 10, 15 seconds, uh, I was hearing a woman's voice and then, then I heard the pick noise <laughs> and it was just kind of your brain kind of pops yeah. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Cause that's kind of what as a slide player, you're intuitively after, but you don't think you can fully do that. Like until you hear it. <laughs> so I, I remember that moment being um, a bit of an epiphany um, and then incorporating the Indian classical stuff in the same light. I also remember, maybe a, a year or so before that we were doing a tour in Mississippi. We might've been on, on the road with you guys at some point in that leg yeah. with soul live. We were playing Auburn and um, just kind of bouncing around the South. But we ended up at the crossroads museum on, on highway 61 there. And uh, I, I got this record. I noticed that uh, Robert Palmer, the, the great music writer had written this book called deep blues. Colonel Bruce had told me about it. And I picked it up, and it and I also bought this Junior Kimbrel record that uh, Robert Palmer had produced. And I remember that night or that day in the car putting it in, and the way he sang reminded me of the Indian classical stuff, the microtones, and and this was just this is uh, Mississippi. I mean, this was it, 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 or Tennessee. You know, it was, it was Memphis. It was that area, Holly Springs, and uh, I just remember thinking. Like the the sound of the the sound of like broke people sounds the same yeah. <laughs> wherever wherever you are on the planet, and and then you really start incorporating those threads. Um, and then that night, I read in the liner notes that uh, that Junior Kimbrell had a juke joint down in Holly Springs, and he would play every Friday, Saturday, or whenever he decided to. So I I called. This is pre cell phone. Um, you call information, the Holly Springs, get the number. I call the place and 
um, Junior here. <laughs> wow. Like, oh, Junior Kimbrell's on the phone. So I, I kind of stumbled for a minute and then just told him I was a, a musician passing through and a fan and wanted to see if he was performing. And he told me, uh, he, he told me his whole medical history. <laughs> you know, he'd wow. just been in Memphis and was sick and didn't know if he'd be playing at all for a while. And um, maybe two, three months later, he was gone. So it was kind of, kind of a, an amazing time to get to at least speak to the man. Wow, <laughs> it kind crazy. of change, change your world musically in a, in a moment, you know? Um, but yeah, that, that time period, there was, it seems like that age, especially when you're 16, 17 to 20, your, your brain's kind of wide open. You're meeting a lot of people. You're hearing a lot of things. Um, and you know, that's kind of when you make the connections that you, uh, they kind of stick with you. I mean, you can, you continue that, but there is, there's something about the, your brain at that age where you just, you just soak things up and everybody you play with, you, you learn from, and it, it's kind of an amazing time to, it's a great time to be on the road 300 days a year. <laughs> just, right. Just keep, you keep doing it. You know, there's no, no reason to stop if you don't have to at that point. And around this time is when you ran into Colonel Bruce or was this, or, or were you a little younger? You're probably a bit younger, right? Yeah. I, I met Bruce. I think I was 12 when okay, I met so Bruce. Okay. So it was a while younger. 12 or 13, but I think I was 16 or 17 when I was in Bruce's band for a little while, the Fiji Mariners. So I, I got a lot of extended hang time with him in that period. And I mean, he, he was just, he was a game changer for everyone that ever really knew him or really spent time with him. He, and, you know, and he, he went in and out of, there were some phases where he was just an extreme mentor to people and other phases where he would kind of, he would kind of come and go, you know, <laughs> like a, like a radio signal. I think it was, sometimes it was based on it was based on who was around him. He knew who to zone in on. <laughs> you that, know, that's that's for sure, man. He he would if if you if you had that that glimmer or that little <laughs> little bit, that little piece of light, he would just home in on you, man. He, yeah. he was uh, he was incredible that way. And and the opposite, if you uh, if your head was up your ass, he would. He would also <laughs> he was he was incredible that way. He's kind of uh, he parted the seas, you know. So Derek Truck's band, um, yeah. I think so. Yes, actually, yesterday I spent some time listening to Songlines again, which is such a great record. That was a fun one. It was crazy to me not to get dark, but that Co- you know, just to hear Kofi and Rico on a recording again, and I as know, part man. of that band, it kind of hit me as in another wave. There's been so many waves um, yeah. since Kofi's passed and Rico, um, but that version of the band at that point, because you guys went through so many different incarnations, probably even before I was aware. Um, but would you say that that was when that album came out, was that kind of the most um, cohesive version of the band? I, I think so. I mean, that was, uh, that. that's when it felt, that's when it was the thing, you know, that's when it was family and just, as thick as it could get and, you know, counting Butu and 
Todd, who is one of the Todd Smalley is one of the greatest people you could ever tour with oh, and ever have in your corner. He's <laughs> just a, incredible. And, uh, you know, Mike was just a few years into it at that point. And, uh, yeah. And, and Rico and Kofi had, um, they had so much history long before I met either one of them, um, which just made it that much better, you know, that their, their history together and then kind of coming back together around that time, um, added a lot to the, uh, to what made that band, unique and you know just Kofi getting a chance to to write tunes and put them out on records in in our world was uh was kind of new too I mean he had done the ARU thing a little bit but they they were in a, a a weird phase at that point you know it wasn't I don't know if it was quite the same but he I mean Kofi just had so much that people needed to hear and when I think back to that band and really a lot of the time I had with Kofi I just feel I feel lucky that to be able to be to be able to be a conduit at all to <laughs> Kofi's get, get, getting his sound out there and just you know he he's just such an important character you know people needed need to know one of the things that hit me about that record having a different perspective listening to it the other day was hearing Kofi's influence which is just so strong on that record and and it's funny man because Kofi's Kofi's thing was easy for people to overlook for a long time somehow is <laughs> is he was such a master at just making things sound cool and better but he never really drew attention to himself unless you were a musician and then you right, right. Well, that's the guy <laughs> well he was <laughs> like, just so slick at it totally, you know totally, and i totally. the my some of my favorite memories ever was playing bass with you guys and being tucked in that little corner with Kofi. And oh my just, God. it was the Kofi show. It was just like all night long. And to be right next to him and really know what he was doing. Like totally. I would be hearing the harmony over the bass and like hearing what he would add to it. And you and I talked about this, that sometimes he'd laugh at how amazing <laughs> he was. That was the only time he'd ever boast and no one else saw it except us. Cause he would like snicker under his breath. Like, Oh my God, that was so, killing and nobody's gonna know (laughs) so beautiful man it's so beautiful yeah i mean that's that's when you knew it was getting good when you'd uh you'd look over and see that grin on his face or catch the occasional chuckle because he had done something just full pimp (laughs) yeah and also i would love watching musicians gather behind him and just oh man every night yeah especially in that version of the band where uh the stages were big enough where there was room behind Kofi. That was always the gathering point for uh, anybody that was that was worth the shit musically. You're like, let's go check out what Kofi's doing. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's so, so badass. And you don't uh, like people like Neil Evans who just doesn't ever watch anyone. You know, he's who, you know, yeah. and he would sit there and just absorb every second of Kofi, and yeah, always right? always have so much to say about it afterwards. Just like, oh my god. Yeah. We, we were watching uh, the, with our kids last night. We were watching the the Fellowship of the Rings, the first Lord of the Rings film, and uh, there were certain scenes with Gandalf, and I was just kept thinking, "That's Kofi." <laughs> 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 That's what Kofi did. <laughs> he just kind of. He was just kind of there to fix things and make it great when you needed it. Yeah, that's <laughs> at true. All, at all times, man. Always and, dropping the knowledge like right when you needed it. That's true. Totally, man. And, and I mean, and he loved playing with, uh, like when he would go sit in with you guys, the, the bowl live stuff or really anytime I, I could always tell when he had done that on his break, cause he would, 
he'd come back with like a little extra hop in his step. <laughs> the greatest <laughs> thing about that was we'd always, we'd always tell him and I'd always be like, okay, let me know your hotel or your flight or whatever you need. And he would never ask for any of that. And so we'd be like, well, he might show up. And we always, he always knew that whenever he was around, he was, always Just come, on. come on stage yeah. at any moment. Right. And he would, and it was so funny because we never knew when he would get there. Cause so we would rarely, like we'd always be like, okay, so what's, you know, we'll, we'll sort something out for you. And he'd never ask for money. He'd never ask for it. He would just show up and it would always like be right at the perfect moment. And he knew every soul live song ever. And yeah. I don't know yeah. if he ever sat down and like learned them. You know, that was the that was the most amazing thing. And these aren't like yeah. super simple melodies either. No. And, no, and I mean would... those, those are those are tunes that most people would have to shed for quite a while. <laughs> Sometimes I could tell that he didn't know the one that we were playing and he'd hear it go past once and then come <laughs> so, back and play the second time around perfect. You um, know, we, we the the only other time I've really seen that is when uh when I was out doing that J.J. Kale Clapton record, uh, Billy Preston would sit there and J.J. would, uh, you know, he had all, all these tunes written and he had them on cassette tape and he would play it on this boom box. And everyone would sit around and kind of learn the tunes and Billy Preston would just sit at his B3. And sometimes I was like, is he awake? Is he? <laughs> yeah. But he was just listening one time through. You play the tune and he was 10 steps ahead of everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> that was That's the way Kofi would listen to things. Like he would... And anytime we would write tunes in the studio, anytime you did anything, it was it was kind of one pass. I mean, it never yeah. it was rare that that dude didn't didn't fully catalog what was going on. And and it almost it seems like the tunes that you guys wrote um, or write um, it was such in his wheelhouse that like he 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 would absorb that stuff, and he kind of had like I don't know he had he had an extra sense for that that kind of sound too. He right, was just right. so tapped into it. I mean, Neil Evans is another guy where I think him and Kofi have this thing where they don't necessarily have to play it out in their fingers. They don't have to translate it to their fingers. They have to work totally. it out in their mind and then it's just there. It's just locked and loaded. Yeah. You know? They've already mapped it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the way that Neil will play the bass lines and also, and then play something completely counterintuitive with his right hand. Sometimes I'll ask him because when I started singing and playing, I was like, I don't know how you do that. And he was like, Oh, you just got to learn the spaces between. Which yeah, yeah, blew yeah. my mind kind of. I was like, holy shit. And I remember that like helped me so much. Just some, and then I, now when I watch him work things out, I can kind of see sense. him like doing yeah, yeah. his like weird like in his brain, just figuring out where the gaps are, and I'm like, oh shit. Yeah, a puzzle piece. Well, yeah. you know, Kobe, he was such a he was such a gamer. <laughs> like right. He was he, everything. Everything felt like a game to him. Music was that way too. A lot of times, like he would. I mean, you you'd walk up at the back of the bus at three in the morning and he was back there racing on his ipad <laughs> like oh yeah was, really was, that's kind of funny oh yeah that's funny flight flight simulators and race car games but like he was such a gaming guy um i felt like he was always working things out that way i can see him laughing when like that puzzle piece it's like when he was musically putting <laughs> that last piece of the puzzle in. he's like ha, ha. Oh, <laughs> you know? i got it yeah i got that motherfucker <laughs> oh man that's oh funny. man no Nobody better, man. I, I miss that man. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm just glad we have him and Bruce and Rico uh, 
I'm just glad I got to be around those guys and I, I quote them daily. I know, um, without even knowing it, man. I, I forget. Yeah. Oh, I mean, until until Rico was gone, I I didn't realize how how much of my uh, either vocabulary or storytelling came from things that I learned from Rico. Because <laughs> right. that, that that dude lived such an incredible life too, man. He was, uh, but and Bruce was this way too. And my dad sometimes, where the the most outlandish stories that they tell that seem totally fabricated are all the ones that are absolutely true. Yeah, <laughs> like, I don't doubt it. <laughs> Rico had that thing too, where he was he was everywhere, man. He was around for so much important stuff in uh, in his crazy Rambo way. <laughs> yeah, man. Damn, and I mean, for only being, are you forty one now? Uh, 40. Yeah, you're 40. For a few okay, more 40. months. Yeah. A few more months. That's right. Till June. Um, you have, I mean, at 40, there's not too many people that have the amount of stories that you have, but also the one, <laughs> also the amount of stories you've gotten to hear from firsthand, <laughs> you know, true. from guys like that. And I, I have to, I have to lead into, uh, working with Eric Clapton must've been, uh, pretty, mind-blowing as well you know just spending time with him and i did did you get some good stories out of him yeah and you know i mean for me i mean for anybody getting the call from eric is is surreal but and my dad named me after that record so it felt right it felt strange <laughs> even stranger but he you know he was in the middle of writing his book when i was out with him so he was he was reflecting on a lot of that stuff i mean he was asking me um stories about my uncle and the almond brothers just trying to i think in his mind trying to piece stories that he was there for together trying to figure out where it fits and uh so he he was yeah there were a lot of stories flying around then um you know him going to see hendrix at a club in london and just things that you forget uh, again it felt like myth to me some of these things You're like oh yeah you guys were there for that same with being around greg and butch where like oh yeah, you knew, you knew Elvin Jones and and McCoy back in the day. <laughs> like you, you actually knew these guys. Um, but you know, Eric was there for so much of it. When he's talk, talking about the the Harrison stories around the time of making Layla, it's just it's uh, it's it's pretty wild stuff. But you know, you you learn a lot from people like that. You you know, especially the ones that make it and the survivors. You kind of it kind of makes you realize that you you do have to pace yourself a little bit. <laughs> like you gotta, sure. we, we run hard and we, you know, we're, we are not choir boys and we, you know, we do our thing, but um, especially once you start having kids and a family, like you really have to start thinking wide and you have to start thinking about um, if you want to be here a while, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta pace yourself. <laughs> not, not necessarily musically, what you do in your, in your lifestyle. And, um, but it's a fine line because you, part of what makes our favorite musicians who they are is, is the kind of the reckless abandon that they play with the sound. And, and you have to keep some of that, but, uh, I do think there's a way to, to thread the needle. You know, I think there's a way to, to kind of do both and, and not crash and burn or spiral out of control or get boring. So Eric is one end of that spectrum. And then you're on the road with Greg Ahmed, the other end who 
kind of learned that lesson, but maybe pretty late in the game, maybe the damage was done, you know? So you're always trying to balance what you're trying to balance your, your fandom for these, for these heroes of yours and then try to shake out the lessons that you can kind of take with you. And then, then you meet people like BB King or Willie Nelson and they just seem to somehow have figured it out. (laughs) They just have that personality where they just, they seem to be at peace with where they are and who they were. And they, they really carry it um, really uniquely. Um, So I don't know, you, you're always trying to, uh, trying to take those lessons from the people that you get to spend time with and and uh some of it's usable some of it you just have to admire right. <laughs> just be you know be lucky to be in their presence uh, but some of it you can take with you someone like bb king i almost think like you said just being in the presence of someone like that there's not you know he i don't feel like he there was ever like a learning curve for him he just no. was you know he, yeah um, yeah the way he played, the way he was on stage, you just don't sense he was ever nervous, you know, or yeah. <laughs> there was never a struggle. Uh, or, or at least if there was, there, there were not cameras or there, they're not recordings of it. Right, right. <laughs> he was, he, by the time we all got to him, he had it well sorted. Yeah, yeah it I was kind of just turn it on because he's just always like that. It's just whether you're watching yeah. it, okay, turn the lights on and <laughs> turn the sound on. He's going to he let BB go. <laughs> but there's there's some people that just like you said they just carry themselves that way. I remember yeah. um, JMO would always bring just amazing musicians around to to different shows, and there was one night at the Beacon, and I remember looking across the stage, and I couldn't make out who it was, but there was a there was a gentleman sitting uh, the seats that they would set up side stage, and he it just looked so regal and just so together, and I remember thinking who is that right. <laughs> when I got close, I realized it was Alan Toussaint and you just go, Oh yeah. Some people just, some people just carry themselves. <laughs> like, I know that's a bad motherfucker, but he had that thing too, where he, he just had it together a little better than everyone else. Right. <laughs> a little tighter. Yeah. With someone like Clapton, you've kind of, we've kind of seen him through so many struggles, which also you can learn so much from. I mean, I read that book that you're talking about and it was one yeah. of the greatest. I took so much away from that book. Um, you know, I, I still haven't read it. I mean, I, I've, I feel like I should, but same with Greg's book. I, I just never, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell if it was the right thing to do or not when you're you know, when you're on a bus with him, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't want to know with Greg. I highly recommend it. At least the, the Clapton. I, I need to. Yeah, no, the Clapton to. book. Is there any, like, specific things you took away as a band leader uh, from Clapton and from being on the road with him? One of the things that I took away kind of leading into to this band, to Desi Chuck's band, was when when he hired people for his band, like, he he expected you to do what you do. And there wasn't a lot of micromanaging going on. Like he, it's like he, he hired the people that he hired because he, he wanted, he wanted that. He wanted that sound and energy. And it wasn't just to have, he didn't need names up there to (laughs) sell tickets. Like he wanted, he wanted what you, what you had. Um, So I I took a little bit of that away from it. It's like, you, you you don't want to, I don't know. You don't. You don't want to clip anyone's wings. You just kind of let them do their thing, and and you really have to rely on chemistry a lot. A lot of it is 
if it's if it's good, it's going to be good. And if if the chemistry's right, the band's going to sound better than than the parts. Um, so some of it was that, and and some of it was his pacing. I mean, I, I did love the way there were some nights where he would just unleash, but he never played so much that you didn't want to hear him play anymore. You always you always wanted he he always would he he would pull back at certain times that made you want to hear more and i think uh i, I think that's a hard lesson for <laughs> a lot of us <laughs> it's like so that that was one of the subtle things that i took from it is just it, it's good to have something in your back pocket sometimes yeah one of the things that i notice when listening back to myself at least is that i never say i should have played more that's that's, that's <laughs> never <Yeah>. happened. <laughs> no, it's never. I I hear you, man. I I have that thing when listening back to myself as well. It's, yeah, it's not. I try often. to avoid listening back to myself, but when I do, it's like always. Oh man, I could have cut a lot of that fat. <laughs> like that was a great off ramp right there. Right, right. I could have took that it. one, but I find myself yeah. making better choices on that as I get older. Um, I I do too, man. I do too. Could be and laziness. Then, <laughs> I'm just tired. No, we're uh, gonna chalk it up to taste. Yeah, yeah, we'll chalk that up to taste. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. It's a it's a fine line. I mean, there's uh, but I I think when you err on the side of leaving them wanting more, that when you do have a night that's incredibly inspired, it really means something. <laughs> you know, like because there are nights where where you you just have more ideas or things just there's nights where things just flow differently in your you're making these connections that you haven't made before and you're coming at it from a different angle and the sounds a little different and you're just the, the relationship from your guitar to the amp is right. And there's, there's some nights that you just want to, you just want to go. <laughs> and it's nice yeah. when, when, uh, when that's a, a special thing, you know? Um, I mean, you never, you never hold back. That's a different thing. You know, it's one thing to not leave it on the stage. I, I don't think that's ever, I mean, we have, we have musical faults, all of us, but I don't think anyone in our circle is is guilty of that. <laughs> like we show up, you show up to play and you try to make it happen every night. Uh, but there are some nights where, um, you know, it's just a different feeling. It feels like the those are those are what keep you doing it for the rest of your life. You get one of those in every fifteen or twenty nights, or sometimes you get a string of them. But um, it it sure feels good when it happens. I mean, what we try to get to is the point where just the bottom is higher. <laughs> totally, I mean? totally, yeah. And you're always yeah. struggling to make the, the 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 top higher too. But there's a certain point. I mean, I think at this point, you guys, as a unit, as a Fesky Trucks band, um, there's never a show that's bad. You know what I mean? It's like there's kind of a level now that you guys run at, and I think part of it is, you know the band working as a unit, but also you and Sue leading the band, you guys have just gotten better at it, you know? Yeah. You get more comfortable in your roles and you, you get more comfortable. I, I guess you just start trusting things more, you know, and you, uh, cause I, you know, I, I don't know if it's a, I think it's a line in that James Gadsden instructional video where he's like, you know, you don't want to go up there. Just if you're playing before a band, you just want to go up there and kill them. He's like, you'll just play wrong. Right, <laughs> you just play right. tight. <laughs> it's right. like there, there is a thing where you can try too hard, and yeah. I, I think I think that's one of the things that you you get better at over time. Um, when sure. you don't overstress, you're like, you know, I I trust that we're gonna make this 
pretty damn good. Right. <laughs> then you, then you kind of leave, you leave yourself open to, to the, you know, the, the things that are different and magical about each show and you're not trying to force it down the field. So I, I, yeah, the, I, that's one of the beauties of having a, a band together for a good long while is like you said, the floor just keeps coming up, you know? Right. And, and then it, it seems to be, it seems to be kind of cyclical the ceiling can can rise and fall a little bit. There's some runs where you feel like there's no top, and then there's other runs where you feel like you you're kind of banging up against it. <laughs> but yeah, that's yeah. that's just kind of the nature of of life, you know. And you've also been able to assemble players, even though the lineup has changed a little over the years. Uh, you've been able to put people together that all make right choices. Yeah, tasteful, tasteful players and. And, you know, and, and I mean, somehow it just keeps, uh, it just kind of keeps evolving, you know? And I mean, you never think when, I mean, when, when someone like, when you lose someone like Kofi, you just think maybe we should just all retire from music. <laughs> like, how do you go on from that? Um, but then, you know, when, when Gabe came along and Gabe never got to, well, he met Kofi years ago, but Gabe was there when Kofi got sick. He wasn't, I mean, he, he was there just holding his spot until he got back. Um, so the, it was a different feeling, you know? Um, but he, I mean, he, he's such a, he's such a different player and he's coming from such a different place that it feels, it feels okay to just fully charge down the road. If it was, if it was somebody that was trying to pull from Kofi's bag too much, or that was too similar, I don't, I don't know if you could, I don't know if you would feel right about it. <laughs> it just, it had to be different. Yeah. And, and it's just about musicians that are, are willing to be a part of a, a group in a, in a whole and not a, an individual pursuit because of a band like this. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of personalities, musical and otherwise on the stage and in the bus. So you gotta, it, there's gotta be a little selflessness to it. And when you guys were putting the band together, I mean, were you and Susan plotting this for a while? I mean, obviously you guys being together, um, it made sense to go on the road together and have a band that was a family oriented thing. But um, was this something you guys plotted out for a while or was there kind of like a moment? I remember you were, were listening to Mad Dogs and Englishmen and were like drawn to the idea of having a band where a lot of different people could stand out. Um, but was the, was the concept of the band something that was kind of orchestrated for years before it happened? You, you know, we, we did a few tours with her band and, and my band where we toured together and would flip flop. And, and then we did, uh, I think the soul stew revival where it was kind of a, a collision of our two bands. And I think maybe in the back of our minds, we were kind of testing the waters to see what it would be like to be on the road together because right. <laughs> we'd always always thought like i mean just hearing her sing from the beginning i i, I remember thinking it would be incredible to be in a band with her and write tunes and I, you know I, I, something feels right about this but it, it wasn't something we really plotted out i mean i, I gotta say maybe two maybe two or three months i had to be longer four six months before um, everything changed. I just, I kind of knew that I was going to start from scratch. I, I just, I could feel that with my solo group, like it was, 
it was just time to shift gears, kind of run out of run out of ideas, and maybe it was just things things were changing, and um, and I knew there would be a small window to do something with with Sue because once once you start something up and and get it rolling, it's you just kind of have to watch it go and, <laughs> and see yeah. it through, and yeah. and you never know. So I remember mentioning to her, um, you know, I I think I'm I think I'm gonna start something from from scratch and. Um, you know, if, if we're ever going to do something now seems to be the time. And, and around that time, I think we, we had watched that mad dogs film and it kind of hit us. Well, it could be fun to, to put a big, crazy band together. But another part of it was just wanting to have the Burbridge brothers together. You know, that was, that was a big part of it in the beginning. And, uh, the first thing we did, we had, um, Herbie Hancock had called us about recording on his imagine record. And that was one of the first things we did with O'Teal and Kofi yep. and Mike and me and Sue. And that was kind of the very beginning of it. And then you were down here with, with Adam Deitch and we were kicking around ideas for a long time. And that, that was kind of when the, the wheels started turning. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I, it wasn't something that we had, we had really thought about until it was time to do it. And, and I told, you know, Sue, I told Sue at the time, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this if we're going to keep our solo project because it just feels feels like as soon as it doesn't work we just immediately roll back to what we were doing before and i i feel like to really do something you have to you kind of have to cut the cords and you have to cut the safety net and you gotta you gotta put everything in it because it's either either you put what you got in it and it goes or it doesn't right right now that commitment is crucial yeah it's it's the only way man and if you have this if you have this easy out in the back of your mind and you know that you can just, you know, fold back into what you were doing, it's, it's a, it's a different feeling. You know, you don't go into it with guns blazing and, and you know, there's with every band, there's highs and low moments and there's times where you think it's going to be easy. And there's times where you think, um, we, I don't know if this is going to happen, but <laughs> you got, you got to push through all of that stuff. And I guess it's kind of the same with a relationship or anything you have to, uh, you have to really go in and uh and I, I was really happy that she was in the same headspace at the time and um you know it's been a pretty incredible ride i gotta say did you guys see yourselves um kind of taking it as far as it's gone i mean now it's it's amphitheaters i mean i think you, when you guys started you guys kind of came out punching you know came out swinging but um you know now you've got the wheels of soul tour doing like 8,000 people a night and stuff like that. Are there times where you kind of look at what you're doing and, and say, Holy shit, <laughs> we've built something here every once in a while. I mean, Blake's been really good about, um, I mean, cause I've, I've been working with Blake, our manager for 24, 25 years. And, um, there's been a few times where he's like, Hey, you know, I, I know, I know you don't step back and look at how things have grown, but, it's a pretty big deal to do seven nights at the beacon or whatever it was right, <laughs> like right. every once in a while he'll kind of, he'll, he'll kind of mention that stuff. And, and, and you know how it is. You just, we work and you grind and you're just trying to make it happen. You don't often step back and, uh, and, and look at where it is. So I, I think one of the nights that we were playing, it was a red rock show where it, it kind of hit me once or twice that, Wow, this is a it's a pretty amazing thing that's happened, and uh, and I've had a few of those, especially since we lost Kofi. Because I think about how much we all owe 
to him <laughs> and his his musicianship and genius and songs and presence and um and and Rico too and you know and Colonel but I th- there's been times where I've recently maybe the last six months a year where you you step back and and you appreciate how far things have come and and you you think about all the people that got you there along the way I mean it's you know we we all work hard and do our thing but we're we're incredibly lucky the people that have helped us along the way the people we've met and hooked up with and played with and um you learn from and you know the songs that written with you the songs you've written for our group i mean those are those are vitally important things that got our band to where we are doyle is another one where you know you just you're incredibly thankful for i, I don't know our band feels like it's a it's a community effort <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> you know, and a, a lot of a lot of people have uh, have helped get it to where it is, and uh, yeah, and and you know, right now it's an uncertain time, so you, you you wonder you wonder how far you can keep things rolling. But I have a have a good feeling about when things do get back. I, it'll never get back to normal. <laughs> I think that ship has sailed. But yeah. when it gets back to whatever it's going to be, or when it gets to wherever it's going to be, I think people are really going to be hungry for, for music and they're going to be hungry yeah. for, for the thing that we do. So I, I'm, I'm not totally worried about it. I also think, um, maybe we'll come back a little more grounded, you yeah. know, cause like Amen. one of the things, one of the things that has been hitting me since I've been home is just being grateful. Like we've been talking a lot about that in this conversation is just being grateful for the things that we have reflecting on things a little bit, you know, thinking about, you know, that, you know, you and I have written all these songs together that now like people come up to me and tell me how this affected them when they were feeling this way. Or, um, you know, we, there's this body of work. Cause you know, like you said, you put your head down and you just keep going, 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 going. And, uh, sometimes it's like having some gratitude for not only what you've created, but what, um, what kind of doors have been open for you and all the people we've gotten to be around, um, but yeah, sometimes taking that moment to slow down and, and kind of give a little bit of, 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 uh, I don't know, just, just giving that gratitude for those things will help you not only create more of those things, but just will just give you a better attitude in general and just make you a happier person. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I don't think there's any doubt, man. And, and I think it'll, in the long run, I, I think it'll give you your health back too. <laughs> you know? sure. like, I mean, I, I, I really feel like, uh, I mean, especially when we think back to our heroes, whether it's Hendrix or Dwayne or some of those guys, they, they just went pedal down until the ride was over. Right. <laughs> you right. know, they, they never had the chance to, to take a break. And we're, you know, we're older. We're not, we're not that age. I think we would be, dialing it back by now anyway <laughs> a little right, bit but right. but there there is perspective is it's everything man you have to you have to do that and you have to look back and in the thing you mentioned um you know you realize that some of the stuff you've been a part of does connect with people and it's you know that's a that's a powerful thing when you realize a song you've written or a song you've been a part of um you know is meaningful to people you don't you don't really you don't spend a lot of time thinking about that when you're just constantly working and making <laughs> records and touring. Like you, you don't really, it doesn't really hit you that way, but it, it is, it is nice to be aware of that stuff. And, and 
you know, it, it makes you grateful that the, the thing that you were trying to do when you first got into this, um, it actually came to fruition in a lot of ways. And I, I think about that with, there's certain musicians I know where you can, you almost think like, what are you, what are you after? Like, what are you trying to get? Because you kind of already did it. <laughs> like yeah. you did this, this thing you're after, um, you've already done that. So take a deep breath and then just make something beautiful and just, you know, make, just keep doing it. <laughs> I mean, I we, it's okay to, it's okay to accept and it's okay to, we don't have to, you don't have to be grasping for this thing that, uh, that's never there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I mean, I wish I could go back and t- although if I did tell my 23 year old self that I still probably wouldn't listen. <laughs> no, we wouldn't uh, listen. But so, uh, all the all the good lessons you got to live through. Yeah, man. this is true. This is true. <laughs> well, man, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, hanging out. Well, love you, Kraz, and you be safe. Stay safe. And uh, I love you, too, man. Uh, give Sue and, and the kids uh, big hugs from me and Lauren. And uh, again, thanks for doing this, man. Awesome, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, talk soon. Once again, I want to thank Derek Trucks for taking the time and being on the show today. One of my favorite people and definitely one of my favorite guitar players. Right about now, I'd like to play a song from the Derek Trucks Band album called Songlines. And I feel like this was a moment where I really heard a turning point in Derek's playing. And he started really incorporating Indian ideas and Indian scales. This one is called Sahib Teri Bandi Maki Madni.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.